0: Very good. Please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, we come to our final um, sermon in the book. We've been in verses 14 through 22 now. This is our third week in 14 through 22, answering this question how to handle conflict or how do I handle conflict? And uh, our first message was on um, the concept of humility. And then last week we talked about forgiveness. And now we are going to speak in regard to truth. And, of course, the primary objective to avoiding conflict, if we were going to boil uh, it down to the primary objective in, in this idea of conflict, it would be found in Romans chapter 12, verse 8. Where Paul writes, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men, right? We ought to do our very best to foster peace and edification among those with whom we interact. And indeed, let it never be said of us that we are problem starters, that we are hard to get along with, that we are prone to argument or, or prone to bring about conflict, And if you are one of those, if you do carry that testimony, then you need to know that you carry it to the detriment of your testimony of Jesus Christ. These two testimonies are incompatible. Where your reputation as a conflict starter or a conflict continuer exists or abounds, your reputation as a follower of Jesus Christ suffers. But here's the thing. If we are those peacemakers that Jesus called us to be when he said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the peacemakers. If we are those who manifest as best we can this reality that as much as lies within us, we live peaceably with all men. Just because you attempt to avoid conflict doesn't mean conflict is always avoidable, does it? And that for two reasons. First, because other people exist. Right? Other people exist. The idea, you know, parenting would be great if it weren't for children, right? Pastoring would, would be great if it weren't for people. This idea is, is valid in one sense, but in another sense, it's ironic because it's unavoidable, right? And some people are just angry, unreasonable, not happy unless they're picking fights, causing drama. Not happy unless they bring others down with them. Right? And we know this. We know that this is true. That proverbs, the Proverbs is filled with verses speaking about the reality that the wicked are not happy until they have brought others down in their mischief. And much of this problem ought to be solved within the first two attributes. Right? So when people are angry or people are are unhappy or people are unreasonable, humility and forgiveness can go a very long way toward solving that problem. Let's just review briefly those first two attributes before we get to our our second reason why conflict can be unavoidable. In conflict, remember humility. In conflict, remember forgiveness. If you're acting in humility and forgiveness, one thing that is certainly not going to happen is that you are not going to find yourself provoked into conflict, right? Right? where a person singles you out and attacks you, and for whatever reason, in themselves, for their own pleasure, whatever it might be, uh, they seek to bring you to a place of frustration and anger. If, If you have set aside your own rights, however, if you are walking in humility, so that you are more prone and more apt to take a wrong than to receive a wrong, so that you are more prone and more apt to set yourself aside and to elevate another because you want to do all things under edification and you want to seek peace among men, and if you are walking in the kind of forgiveness that Jesus Christ reflected in his own life, as we considered last week, that we be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven us, Ephesians 4.32. Then we are living in such a fundamental emptiness of ourselves that it's going to be very, very difficult for someone to provoke us unto conflict Very difficult to be drawn into the same misery which they live in and into which the other parties are seeking to have you join them. But the second reason why conflict may be unavoidable, other than just that there are people around us, is our topic for today. That in conflict we need to remember truth the other reason why conflict might become unavoidable is because sometimes there are things that need to be said. Even though we know that by saying them, we're going to make people upset. Now, as we approach this concept today, we must remember to filter it through the two principles that we've already considered. Some people thrive on this point, the point of truth. Yes, pastor, now you're getting to the point where I can take out the hammer and start hitting people, right? And then I can just say, well, I'm just telling the truth. Uh, Filter truth through humility and forgiveness. The truth in love. Some people love truth because it makes them feel as though they have license to be mean, harsh, unfeeling, cold, terribly matter-of-fact. They lay into people, make them feel awful, say things that are insensitive, unkind, and unfeeling, though they might be true. And they say, I'm just telling the truth. And maybe that is so, but if I am being humble and I am reflecting the principles of forgiveness in my heart, then the manner in which I approach expressions of truth, especially among those whom I know it will cause a measure of conflict, will be restrained, careful, patient, gentle. And all of this plays into what we're going to consider today. When conflict is unavoidable first make sure your heart is humble second make sure that you have already forgiven and are ready at a moment in a moment to forgive thoughts and intents and then third always be on the side of truth courageously and lovingly tell the truth. Let's read our text. Beginning in verse fourteen of Second Timothy chapter four. The Bible says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much evil. Remember Paul speaking to Timothy here. The Lord reward him according to his works, of whom be thou ware also. For he hath greatly withstood our words. At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray, God, that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work, and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So recall our context. Paul speaks of a conflict between himself and a man named Alexander who was a coppersmith. We do not know what this conflict was about specifically, but we know that it was not a trivial conflict. It was a manner of of, uh, spiritual or or theological importance, we would assume. Paul warned Timothy to beware of this man Alexander, either because uh, Timothy knew him and would interact with him in some way, shape, or form, or maybe uh, Timothy in in his journeys to Paul in Rome would interact with him in some way. I mentioned briefly last time that this Alexander that we find here, <clears throat> excuse me, might be the Alexander that Paul mentioned in 1 Timothy 3, chapter 1 120 along with Hymenaeus, who Paul says were false teachers and whom he had delivered up to Satan. We're not certain that this is the same man, but we know that this man, in some measure of conflict with Paul, greatly withstood Paul's words. Now, greatly withstanding uh, words is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, um, There's times where people need to greatly withstand other people's words. Um, There's times where someone needs to greatly withstand my words, um, because I'm not always right, and I'm sure Paul was not always right as well. But when he was functioning in an apostolic setting, when he was speaking as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, to withstand his words were were to withstand Christ. As Paul being one of the ordained apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have that flavor of weight behind this. That what Paul was saying was something that he had utmost confidence was absolutely true. And Alexander was withstanding him. He was fighting against this. And he was doing so in a manner that presumably was somewhat convincing. Was somewhat um, effective. Alexander's argument was probably articulate in some way, shape, or form. And we presume that because those that were with Paul, notice he said said that greatly withstood our words. So there's a group there. But then after Alexander withstands, after he pushes back, Paul says all the men forsook him. So those that were with him forsook him in this moment. And so whatever Alexander said, it must have been pretty good. But that doesn't mean it was correct. And this is noteworthy, because Paul was not alone. Those with him did very little good for him in this instance. And as we considered last time, Paul states that all these men forsook him, but he defended the truth, desiring in forgiveness that the Lord would not lay that wrong. And he calls it a wrong, that they forsook him, once again. He is acknowledging that what he said was true and what Alexander was saying was false in that by forsaking him in his moment of argument, in his moment of defense, he asks the Lord not to lay it to their charge. He saw it as a great offense, not just to him but to the Lord. But this did not cause Paul to back down. Much to the contrary. We we, we read in verse 17, notwithstanding the Lord stood with me and strengthened me that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Last month, our memory verse was Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do unto me? We can apply this to any number of contexts, but it is never more relevant than when we are dealing with truth, specifically truth that is not very palatable. When we have to tell hard truths To people that don't want to hear it when we have to live out truth in the midst of people who don't want truth if i have truth on my side then i have all that i need not only for confidence to stand but also the courage to stand against or to speak out for that which is true this is my confidence as a preacher i've told many of you my testimony And my last hesitancy to being a a pre, well, not my last hesitancy, that would be another matter, but one of my great hesitancies was, and one of the reasons why I felt I I, I knew I had a call, was this, that I don't like to share my opinions. And the reason why is because I say, who cares what I think? My opinion is my opinion, your opinion is your opinion, who cares what I think? And so when I get into the pulpit, I'm not interested in telling you what I think. I don't want to tell you what I think. I have no confidence in what I think. But I'm more than happy to tell you what God thinks. And now we bring interpretations into it, and we bring uh, various applications into it and such. And, and the Lord, uh, in, in His grace, gives us the ability to, to do those things. But the fact of the matter is, our courage, our confidence, the thing that allows a person to stand up and to speak with confidence is that he has confidence in what he's speaking, right? And so though all of Paul's companions had forsaken him, Paul's confidence was that as long as he was on the side of truth, the Lord would both stand with him and would strengthen him to contend against error. So Paul stood for truth. And by him, he says, his preaching was fully known. The Gentiles that were there heard what needed to be heard. All the Gentiles heard. Now again, we do not know the nature of this conflict. We do not know if the contention was physical in nature, if it boiled over to some sort of physical contention, so that Paul was in physical danger. Or if the contention was simply ideological or theological in nature, so what was at stake was the testimony of God and his word before uh, Gentiles, which would have been unbelievers, right? Paul had his people with him. Alexander was there. A bunch of unbelievers were standing there. Paul had a testimony to uphold. He had truth to defend. But all of Paul's companions stood back. They backed off. They, they, they stood down. They failed to refuse to support Paul. But Paul knew that he must not fail the truth here, lest in this failing the preaching of the word of God would be damaged, the testimony of the word of God would be damaged, and the message would not reach to the Gentiles. So Paul stood firm. He trusted the Lord. He proclaimed truth. And as it would seem from the text, he won the victory. Paul's expression that would lend us to this idea is, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. <clears throat> 1 Peter 5 8 exhorts us to be sober, be vigilant, for our adversary, the devil, walketh about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And it may be this idea that Paul is espousing as he says that he was delivered from the mouth of the lion. That the Lord delivered him from Satan's devices, from the attacks against himself and his ministry, uh, from the uh, attempt to discredit his apostolic authority, whatever it might be. This inter- interpretation would perhaps add weight to the idea that this is the Alexander whom whom Paul had delivered up unto Satan in First Peter chapter one, verse twenty. But there is, an there are other possible interpretations. Um, one such interpretation is that this is significantly more literal than it is metaphorical or physical. In other words, some believe that Paul is recounting a time when he stood before magistrates in Rome, and they were deciding whether or not to arrest him and cast him into the, the, some sort of amphitheater of lions, which was happening in that day to Christians. Not so much immediately in Paul's day, but by this point, they were under Nero, and they were getting to that point where Christians were going to be dipped in oil and burned and, and they were going to be sort of cast to the lions and all of these things, right, that we that we, we know about from Fox's Book of Martyrs and the Martyrs Mirror and such. So we're getting to that point in history, and there are some that believe that when Paul says that I was delivered from the mouth of the lion, he really means he was delivered from the mouth of the lion. Now in that scenario, Alexander would be speaking against Paul to have him destroyed. And Paul would be defending himself. And it's for this reason that I'm a little less convinced of this one. Because while Paul can defend himself as an extension or a means by which to defend truth, that Alexander would charge him with things such as were often charged in those days. The early church Christians were charged um, with um, being incestuous because they married their brothers and sisters, not because they married their brothers and sisters, but because they married brothers and sisters in Christ, right? In the same way that Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And so they charged him with, with being seditious and wanting to, wanting to basically be a terrorist, right? And destroy the temple, um, which was not what he was talking about. And so they would constantly be doing that. And so it's possible that Paul was defending his apostolic authority and he had no one to speak for him. But again, this breaks down a little bit when he says that, that they together were, were defending things and then no one stood with him when Alexander spoke up. So the interpretation of this being a physical conflict before magistrates is not without merit, but then as well, Paul does not say that he answered again to, the, to a judge or a magistrate. He says he answered to Alexander. So there's also a real possibility that, and this is my favored interpretation, not favorite, but favored, um, that we're speaking not of a contention of legal importance, but rather simply of theological importance. Wherever you come down on that, as far as interpretation, I'm not going to make a a big argument one way or another. But Paul seems to be contending against Alexander directly here in a vindication of God's truth. And specifically, Paul mentions that Alexander withstood their words. A contention surrounding biblical or spiritual truth, not necessarily a judge or a magistrate. So Paul finds this victory and he counted this as a victory for truth. And Paul's declaration of deliverance then gives way to a deeper confidence that regardless of what happens to him in body, as he aligns with truth, he will be preserved unto eternity. So we read in verse 18, and the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's not just that the Lord delivered Paul this time from the mouth of the lion, whatever that evil work or thing was, but rather, Paul expresses a confidence rooted in God's word and in God's promises that he would be delivered from every evil work. Not that Paul would never suffer, not that Paul would never be persecuted. Boy, we know that's not true, right? But Paul's confidence was founded in truth, and so regardless of how others responded to the conflict... He could have confidence that what he was saying and in the power of truth, uh, he could have the confidence in the power of truth to let it do its work in the ears and hearts of the listeners so that he would be delivered from that evil, from the evil uh, false accusations or from the evil of this resistance to him. And he would be delivered in this manner as he spoke truth again and again and again until the day when he'd enter into the kingdom of God. And this was all that Paul needed to have courage. To stand against error. To speak truth even when it isn't popular. To speak truth even when it will cost him something. Because truth matters. And people need to hear it. And Paul knew that he spoke truth. And the same truth assured him that he would, that he had a heavenly home. And that as he was faithful to the word of the Lord, he would also have a heavenly reward. So he speaks in this confidence, preserving him unto his heavenly kingdom. Literally, this reads, the Lord shall save me unto his kingdom. And in this, we are reminded that this word save in the Bible has many different connotations. When, we, when you read the word save, it can mean any number of things. It can mean being born again. So saved uh, from the penalty of your sins and ushered into uh, an eventual home in heaven. It can also mean being saved from physical sickness or disease. It can mean being saved from the consequences of your sinful choices. Physical um, destruction. The meaning is very broad. And here in the King James, the translators use it well. It's a very good word here. That God will keep Paul in his love and in his truth until the day that Paul enters into God's kingdom. And so it was not for Paul to worry about the nature of the human conflict that he was under, or even the effects of that human conflict upon his body. But rather, it was for Paul to tell the truth and to leave the rest to God, to whom be glory forever and ever. And is this not the point? Why do we speak truth? Why do we stand on truth? Not so that we can look good. Not because it makes life easier. We stand for truth because it's true. We stand for truth that the Lord in all things might be glorified. And if we don't have truth, what do we have? Let's finish the epistle, then we'll come back to that thought. Verses 19-22. Paul writes, Salute Prisca and Aquila, and the house of Onesiphorus, Erastus, abode at Corinth, but Trophimus have I left at my litem, sick. Do thy diligence to come before winter. Eubulus greet thee, greeteth thee, And Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ be with thy spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. So Paul salutes Aquila and Priscilla, who Paul first met in Corinth, though they were originally from Rome. They had to leave Rome under the reign of Emperor Claudius, who kicked all the Jews out of Rome, and they were Jewish. They then ended up in Corinth, where Paul met them, according to Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. We presume, perhaps, in that Paul greets them that they were in Ephesus at this time, though that's not necessarily um, for sure. Maybe it is that as Timothy travels, as Paul's going to ask him to do to Rome, he's going to end up going through Corinth to get to Rome, and then going through Corinth to get to Rome, maybe Aquila and Priscilla are still in Corinth, and he'll greet them there. We don't know. But he greets them. He also greets the house of Onesiphorus, who is also mentioned at the beginning of the chapter as the man who often refreshed Paul and was not ashamed of Paul's imprisonment there in Rome. He traveled there, presumably from Ephesus, and sought Paul out diligently and found him and refreshed his soul, and so Paul greets him here again. Paul then updates Timothy on the whereabouts of others. He says Erastus, who we don't know anything else about, is in Corinth. Trophimus... Was sick last time Paul had seen him in Miletus. Paul then exhorts Timothy to come quickly and specifically speaks of him coming before winter. And this would not surprise us. Remember a few uh, verses ago, Paul said, Don't forget to bring the cloak, right? Bring the cloak. Get here before winter. Uh, It was not uncommon under these house arrest situations for the prisoner to have to um, completely provide for himself. He was under house arrest, but he had to provide for his own living. He had to provide for his own means uh, while he was under house arrest, which means he was going to uh, heading. He was heading into a cold winter, and he needed to be prepared for it. And he wanted the layers with which to do so. That would be the idea there. And then finally, of course, Paul extends his greeting to Eubulus, Putins. Uh, extends greetings from, excuse me, Eubulus, Prudence, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. Likely those were people that were in Rome, in the Church of Rome, people that Timothy knew through other circumstances, which is why Paul mentioned them by name, and then was extending his greetings. And then concluding with a final greeting, which is this, a similar greeting to every one of his epistles as we considered in the Hebrews' book sermon. The Lord Jesus Christ be with thy spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. So ends the second epistle of Paul to Timothy. So ends our study of this epistle. Now let's bring it back to the focus of the day. In conflicts, remember truth. We have this statement that we make. Truth is worth fighting for. And the idea here is that truth is worthy of our priority. It's worth standing up for. It's worth losing something for. When we talk about fighting for something, we're not necessarily talking about the idea of getting into fistfights or causing a conflict in that way. But the idea is that truth is worth standing up for, contending for, even uh, going be, being put at a disadvantage for truth. Truth is not, nor has it ever been, a major priority to humans. Do you realize that? Have you ever thought about that? Truth has never actually been, nor is it now, a major priority for humans. People talk about truth all the time. But humanity is not a very rational race. Humanity has never really been a very rational race. Humans see situations. They experience them through their senses. It causes a reaction within them. And then they make emotional decisions about things. They wrap events and circumstances and understandings around what they perceive, their own priorities and desired outcomes, their own experiences and their own feelings. And then once they've done all of that, once they've perceived the situation and and they've they've attached emotion to it and they've attached um, um, uh, feelings to it and understandings to it, after all of that, then rationality comes in. Then they reason through it. Then they, then they apply reasoning. They come to a conclusion, and then they apply the reasoning that leads to their conclusion. Right? And that's not, that's not how truth works. In truth, you, you, you reason something to come to a conclusion. That's not how humans work. We have to go outside of our natural propensity to work that way. We have a tendency to see a situation, make an emotional decision, and then rationalize our, our thought process after the fact. Throughout most of human history, humans have regarded truth as ultimately malleable, changeable, changing with the times and perceptions and feelings of the day and of individuals and of, of leaders and whatever else comes into the, the factors in. And this is why the Bible is so very important. And by the way, if we, if we want to talk about history, this is what has made the Western world so unique in the history of cultures. That, specifically after the Reformation, the Western world founded their rationale on something other than just how they felt, what they perceived. They founded their rationale on something deeper, on a truth that transcends circumstances and thoughts and feelings. The only hope humanity has ever had has been when the moral sentiments of a people have been shaped by divine truths so that they have brought their feelings and perceptions and experiences and subjected them to the reality that God has designed. That's the only time humanity has ever really flourished. And it's why our country has flourished in a way very few countries in history ever have. And it's why our country is now degrading so quickly. Because we're abandoning that for the default. We're defaulting back to human nature. Throughout history, God has always relied upon special revelation as a means by which to give men an anchor point for the reality that he has designed into this world. And then he has called those who have identified that anchor point and accepted that anchor point of truth to be his vessels to then take that truth and disseminate it to the world. Also then choosing from among a subset of those whom he has called his own to dedicate their lives, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, to declaring these truths into the ears of those who will hear. Now the question is, what does this have to do with conflict? If you are living a life of humility, and you are abounding in forgiveness, there are very few, relatively speaking, okay, very few situations where conflict will actually arise in your life intentionally. Most of the time, under the guidance of those first two virtues, you are going to exercise patience, deference, meekness, be willing to accept wrongs rather than, um, rather than further the conflict, uh, be willing even at your own uh, disadvantage to accept um, decisions, actions of others that you might be right with them and maintain peace as we talked about in that first week. Even in the face of those who would take advantage, seek to harm you. You will do as Christ called us to, you will defer. Turn the other cheek as our idiom goes and as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Or as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, specifically among the brethren, you will rather take the wrong and suffer yourself to be defrauded. it's not an easy one to absorb, is it? And if this is the case, then the vast majority of times that you do enter into conflict, that conflict will most likely be in relation to truth. That you're doing what is right and others don't like it. There's truth to be said, truth that needs to be heard, and this is going to become a relational sticking point, or even a legal or ideological sticking point either because you don't want to say what needs to be uh, you don't want to say what needs to be said in alignment with truth or you, you fear to do so but you have to and that will be the conflict or you've said what needs to be said in alignment with the truth and this has made another person angry and this is where, when Paul says, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men, we find ourselves in the as much as lieth in you category. So, there are certain times where it simply does not lie within us to live peaceably with men. And when it is, when at once it is time to tell the truth, when it is time that I must tell the truth, that I must enter into this realm, with the anticipation, at the least, that it is going to bring about conflict. Even if it fundamentally affects my relationship with that person, I, I have to do it. I tell the truth. And naturally, any effect to the relationship, if there is going to be an effect that telling the truth has to that relationship in a negative way, It should not come because of the manner in which I tell it. Right? We talked about this at the beginning. Not because I was rude or abrasive or angry or odious. Not because I came to them in a manner that was absolutely and fundamentally just unkind, unfeeling, uh, uh, lacking thought, lacking context. Much to the contrary, as Ephesians four fifteen calls us, we speak the truth in love. We speak the truth to those who need it as meekly as possible in humility and forgiveness. But you know, this isn't always possible either, is it? So I speak the truth, and I boldly speak it. I speak it with courage. I speak it with confidence. I stand on the truth, regardless of whether anyone stands with me or not, regardless of what the consequences might be, because even among those who have made themselves my enemies, those that have made themselves the enemies of the cross, the truth of the cross is yet their only hope of salvation, is it not? Just because a person hates the cross does not mean he does not need the cross. Just because a person does not want to hear the truth does not mean I should not tell them. And so I tell in love and in patience. And we considered this concept in a little bit of a different context many weeks ago now in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Where we read this. And the servant of the Lord must not strive but be gentle unto all men apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. And if, as we might suspect, Paul was doing here with Alexander, I must stand against someone who is subverting the faith of the hearers or you must stand against someone who is subverting the faith of the hearers. Or I must go to that loved one or that friend and tell them the honest truth about their manner of living, their personal choices, uh, the direction of their spiritual life or the lack thereof. Or if I am compelled to stand up and to preach the truth of God's word in the midst of a society that loathes the power and conviction of the Holy Spirit of God. And if in the course of these events there must be conflict, there must be shame, there must be suffering, will God give me the grace to speak truth? and to endure that which will come. To never deviate from the truth uh, in order to avoid conflict. To never deviate from the truth simply to win an argument, or never even to speak the truth simply to win an argument. And if there must be conflict in the spirit of humility and meekness and forgiveness, I still must speak the truth, Christian. With this is confidence. Not that I'm right, but that God is right. As Paul said in Romans chapter 3, verse 4, Let God be true, and every man a liar. And if I must suffer, and if there must be conflict, and if relationships must be strained in some way, God forbid that this should be the case, but if it must be, let it be for the cross of Christ. Let it be on the, let, let it be on the altar of truth. Let it be, as I express humbly, in a manner of forgiveness, truth. Always desiring reconciliation, always desiring peace. Let it be that others, not wanting to hear it, not being interested in it, will separate from me, will part from me, so that when Jesus said he did not come uh, but to bring a sword, to divide houses, to divide father from son, to divide mother from daughter, to divide husband from wife, Not because Jesus wanted it that way, but because the truth is divisive. Let it be only on that score that conflict must arise in my life. Only on the score of truth, because I cannot back down from it. And I cannot avoid it, because it is the only thing that I have. And I want to stress the fact that many Christians use truth-telling as a cloak for their contentiousness. And this is a fundamental perversion of the concept of truth-telling itself. Don't be one of those who, makes, who masks your maliciousness toward others in a veneer of good intentions or truth statements. Jesus, is, he warned, he spoke to the Jews, and he, he told them in an expression of their hypocrisy that they dishonored their father and mother And as they dishonored their father and mother, they said to their father and mother, it is a gift, right? The idea there being that they would disrespect, dishonor their parents, and then when their parents would bring up the fact that this was dishonoring, they'd say, no, 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 no. I'm just, I'm giving you a gift. I'm telling you the truth. Jesus said it doesn't work that way. Peter warned us that we use not these things that we use not truth as a cloak of maliciousness and let it not be so in our lives. If there must be conflict let it be because I lovingly patiently meekly humbly but courageously and determinedly spoke the truth, echoing the sentiments of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 13 through 17. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that, whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ, for it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. If there's going to be conflict, if there's going to be suffering, if there's going to be a loss of relationship, let it be because you did well. Not because you did evil. Alexander the coppersmith withstood Paul and his companions. Paul did not wish destruction on Alexander, but rather commended his consequences to the Lord in humility and deference. Paul did, however, withstand Alexander, speaking the truth, countering his lie, even though no man stood with him, but all men forsook him. For this Paul sought that the Lord would also not lay uh, this forsaking to the account of those who were with him. He did not harbor bitterness or resentment for their choices or their deeds." But encouraged, Paul stood alone, willing, in this case, to accept the conflict for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and by all accounts, he prevailed. Paul, he had confidence in this, not because of his own wisdom, not because of his own ability, but only because he knew that the, that the God he served was true. And that the word of God was true. Trusting God not only for the conflict, but also for his very soul. And may the same be with us. That in a time when truth is quickly falling out of favor in our society. And man has done what man has always done. And that he has erected false religious systems based upon his own feelings and perceptions that attack the truth of the cross. May we step into this society, into these conflicts, into this world, in humility and in in meekness, determined to live in abundant forgiveness, always ready, willing, and indeed determined as well to tell the truth regardless of the cost because this is what love is. Love does not abound where truth does not abound, Christian. And in this idea, I would like for us to take a step back and contemplate our own lives this morning. We can think of the need for truth in society, and the need for truth in society is most certainly great right now. We can think of the real possibility that in the name of truth, some of us are going to have to make very hard decisions in the decades ahead regarding whether or not we are willing to speak in a society which may utterly destroy your life for speaking the truth. But let's bring it even closer to home this morning and think about your own relationships. Maybe it's with unbelievers you interact with. Maybe it's with other believers, friends, co-workers, associates, family members, fellow Christians. Are your relationships with them defined by truth? Are you willing to tell them the truth? Does someone in the body need to hear truth, but you're unwilling to say it due to a fear of conflict? Or are you in conflict, where you've shown yourself willing to compromise the tra- testimony of truth just to win, to get your way? Willing to... Te- to, to compromise your testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, to step outside of humility and forgiveness. And our focus is on truth this morning. We've already covered humility and forgiveness. But remember, Christian, if you do not have the truth, you really don't have anything. If your testimony among those in the world is not defined by truth, then you have no testimony. That is the thing that distinguishes us from them. The truth in love. If you are hiding your light under a bushel, lest you have conflict, your light is hid from those that need it the most. Throughout every age, living a life defined by truth has always been accompanied by sacrifice. Are you willing to make that sacrifice? Maybe today you're right in the middle of a battle for truth. And perhaps it is that you look out around you and you don't see anyone on your side. There's no support system. Or maybe there is. Wife, children, husband, family, friends, whatever it might be. Maybe you're discouraged. Well, if you're on the side of truth, Christian, then you don't have to be discouraged because if you're on the side of truth, then you're on the side of the Lord. And if you're on the side of the Lord, then the Lord is on your side. And if the Lord is on my side... I will not fear. What can man do unto me? Stand firm, Christian. Tell the truth. Always in love. Search your heart. Do not use it as a cloak of maliciousness. Do not use it in order to further your, contention, your contentiousness. Do not use it simply so that you can say bold, brash, rude things and say, I just have no filter. Don't do that. That does not help the testimony of truth and that does not help you. will not help the conflict, but in humility, in meekness, in patience, in gentleness, being apt to teach, we tell the truth. Come what may. Conflict may arise. Conflict may abound. You don't want it. You'll, You'll humble yourself in whatever way to avoid it, but when it's unavoidable, don't be afraid. Stand firm. Don't be rude about it. Don't be odious. Speak the truth in love. Consider your audience. Be patient, be gracious, but stand. Because if you don't have truth, if I don't have truth, if we yield truth, then we've yielded our distinction. And once we've yielded our distinction, we've yielded our testimony, we've yielded our witness. Let it not be said of us this morning. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray for God's people there are any number of things unto which we would desire to be devoted. There are a number of principles and precepts in your word unto which we will live our lives. But Father, in those times when our desire to live and to tell the word of God fundamentally brings conflict into our lives. Help us in humility and with a determination to forgive any offense, yet tell the truth, come what may. Grant us the wisdom to know when to speak up, how to speak up. Give us the grace to understand our own motives lest we be motivated by some carnal intention or desire rather than a spiritual one. Help us to reflect the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ who did not shy away from the conflict of the truth and yet simultaneously was more than willing at every turn to absorb wrongs for the sake of the gospel. Grant us that we might follow in his footsteps. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net